What's up, everybody? James here, back with another ep- bonus episode of the Messed Up Podcast. Bonus. 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 Very special interview today. You see him, you hear him. It's Howie Rose, the radio voice of the Mets. Howie, first of all, thank you so much for doing this with us. My pleasure, James. Bonus, huh? No bonus. extra cost. No, no extra cost. I, like I mean, that. well, not for us necessarily, but <laughs> going to start you off something very difficult. We did this with Wayne, too. Hard-hitting questions only. Okay. If you had to have one cup of tea, and there's one caveat here, it's either hot or over-iced, who, what are you reaching for? English breakfast Bigelow. <laughs> Perfect. Not a tea man myself. I, I know James no. drinks a little more tea than me. All right. Well, you could learn. <sighs> it's, it's tough. I wake we, up a little bit later than most, so. That's okay. Caffeine lasts you as long as you need it to. <laughs> also, Definitely. Uncaffeinated, too, if you want to just start your day off with a you know, warm cup of tea or... Or over ice. Okay. Big a lot. You guys are stealing my lines. That's all right, though. <laughs> James has been listening to you. I mean, I, I watch TV more just because I'm around, but, like, obviously we know about the radio. James is an avid, diehard radio always guy, yeah. so he, he knows it well. And yeah. you never listen to radio. You no, wouldn't never. lower yourself, right? Yeah, never. No, wouldn't do that. <laughs> <Figures>. <laughs> no, you all right, do. he's out of this show. What do you say, James? <laughs> you and me, brother. We get a different sense of the game on the radio, and that's kind of one of the most beautiful things. And you, you announce games on the radio and on television, so... Maybe talk to us about some of the key differences between those. Well, they're, you know what? They couldn't be any more different. And I'll tell you that in all candor, I think if you polled most TV guys who do baseball now, assuming they've done both, they would tell you that they enjoy doing radio more. It's the greatest challenge to me in sports broadcasting because it obviously moves at a slower pace, baseball does, than the other sports. So as the play-by-play announcer, you really have an obligation to paint a word picture. That's given, that you need to do that. But you also need to be able to weave in stories and anecdotes and facts and, goodness, don't get too caught up in statistics because <laughs> you'll just bore people to death with that. But the point is that you need to be able to do so much more to create a vivid image of what's happening on the field and also keep the attention of your listeners apart from ball one, strike one. A television doesn't allow, allow for that. It, you just basically narrate and punctuate on television. So, yeah, TV's more lucrative but I've always enjoyed, uh, from a grassroots perspective, radio more than anything. You've been a part of, uh, I mean, the Mets have had historic broadcasters throughout time, and you know, the list goes on and on. How is it to just be a part of that group now of just the legendary Mets voices? You know, it, it, it's humbling at times. We have a picture in our booth next door, which I, I begged them to put up for me when we moved in here. And that is of Lindsey Nelson, Bob Murphy, and Ralph Kiner, who were the original Mets broadcasters. Back then, they alternated each game between radio and television. And they were in your eyes and ears, if you were a Mets fan, for seven, eight months out of every year. And so they really did feel like family. And to be considered part of that lineage is humbling in itself. But for me to have that picture in there allows me, in the midst of either a bad, slow-moving game or a season that's not been very good, to every once in a while just glance over at that picture and just absorb the fact that I'm doing now what those guys did, knowing full well what they meant to me with the perspective from other listeners that Wayne and I and, and Gary, Keith, and Ron have that same impact on viewers and listeners today. It is overwhelming when you really stop and think about it. Especially since you did jump into that radio booth and took the mantle from Bob Murphy directly. It's kind of amazing that this ball club has almost had just two full revolutions of announcers because it went straight from the original 
to you, and you're still well, here going strong. You know, there there were different iterations of yeah, the Mets broadcast booth along the way, but I guess you could say that that Gary and I, between the radio and the TV, have had staying power, which some of the others didn't, apart from, of course, Lindsey, Bob, and Ralph. And that in and of itself is quite an honor. Um, but you know, to be part of what's really an extended family of Mets fandom is, I keep coming back to the same word, humbling. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a pretty introspective guy by nature, so I think about that from time to time. And if, if I really close my eyes and imagine myself back in high school at 15, which is how old I was when the Mets won the 1969 World Series, and fast forward ahead now 53 years to what I'm doing and have done for a long time, it just knocks my socks off. It really does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we kind of find ourselves in relatively similar shoes. Obviously, radio is a little bit different than what mm -hmm. we're doing here with the podcast. But for me and James, we've been lifelong Mets fans. All first mm -hmm. memories are with the Mets. So now to be you know associated, working alongside with the team, and especially in a team that's having a great year, it really is. I, I think you sum, like summed up best by saying it's humbling. It's It's such a crazy experience to be a part of. And something that Wayne talked about a lot, if you guys didn't listen to the interview with Wayne, make sure you check that out, great interview. He talked about pulling a lot from you to kind of grow as a broadcaster himself. And to ask you to become introspective for a second, where did you find those influences and, I don't know, those the... Marv Albert was the yeah. biggest, yeah. by far. Um, when I was 13, which was in the summer of 1967, my friends and I started a fan club for Marv. Um, <laughs> he was only at that point doing the Rangers on radio. He was about to begin his first season with the Knicks on radio. And I had fallen in love with hockey and the Rangers and hockey broadcasting the previous season. And you know, when you fall in love with something at age 12 and 13, you're in. I mean, you are completely immersed as I was. So I was head over heels for hockey the, the, the way I was when I was introduced to baseball by my dad in 1961. So started a fan club for Marv and he took an interest in me because he saw that I had professional ambitions um, so I kept in very close contact with him over the years and he would um, occasionally pass by my seat I had season tickets for the Rangers uh, my senior my sorry junior year in high school first year and the booth where they broadcast from then was pretty close to where my seats were and he would pass by my seats and sometimes I'd have my tape recorder there and I would do the game from my seat. And when he saw that I was there with my tape recorder, he'd give me that night's press notes, media notes, so I knew a little bit more about well, what I was talking about. But um, as I got a little older and into college, he would not only critique my tapes, but really give me sound, constructive criticism. And you know, he'd say, this is good, or why'd you do it this way? Or maybe you could think about doing it a different way. I mean, that's invaluable. And so I've had a lot of people who have helped me along the way going back to my earliest ambitions, but Marv was by far my biggest, uh, most significant mentor. Was there one piece of advice from Marv that really has resonated with you? Initially, yeah, it was find another objective and another line of work. He said, You'll never make it, kid. No, he was, um, he was very, very encouraging because, and he's told me this over the years, and, and I wrote a book some years ago, and he, he was nice enough to do the forward. That's awesome. um, he said that I reminded him of himself when he was my age um, because of how 
strong my ambition was and how immersed I was in everything, broadcasting and sports. And, and so I think he took a bit of a liking to me just because of that. And um, I can never, ever thank him enough for what he's meant to me. That's a beautiful story. And I'm sure everyone out there is pretty familiar with Marv Albert, one of the greatest hope so. two have <laughs> ever done it. Now, we're going to come back to baseball at some point, but <coughs> you me. mentioned the Rangers, you mentioned hockey. I want to ask you about your career as a hockey broadcaster, because I'm sure there are a handful of Met fans out there that don't really realize your affinity for the sport. And I specifically want to ask you about your most famous call, mm -hmm. uh, 1994, 1995 mm -hmm. Eastern Conference Finals. Were you even born yet? We were born the year after that. Oh! <laughs> we are I'm 26 a, years old. <coughs> I'm, I'm a Excuse me, that, that calls for a beverage. <laughs> I'm a diehard Ranger fan, though. My dad as well. My uncle also had season tickets through the 70s, 80s, early 90s. Yep, my mom, big Ranger fan as well. Yes, right. Just yesterday in these hallways, my dad You've called. redeemed yourself from the <laughs> tea crack. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> just yesterday, my dad called that game against the Devils, the second greatest game he's ever watched, only behind 1986 Game 6 against the Red Sox. So can you walk us through just the dealing with that game and then making your call and then even going on to play another round of hockey yeah. after that? Crazy. Game six against the Devil. Game six against the Devils. No, I'm sorry. Game seven against the Devils was set up because of what happened in game six, of course, against the Devils. The Rangers were down three games to two. You have to understand the culture then. The Rangers had not won the Stanley Cup since 1940. The Islanders had come in and won four straight Stanley Cups between 1980 and 1983. And so Ranger fans were, you know, had had enough headaches from the Islanders over the years. And now here were the Devils, who moved from Colorado to New Jersey for the 82-83 season. And 11 years later, now they're challenging the Rangers for the Stanley Cup. The Rangers had beaten them all six times they played in the regular season. So, you know, on one <laughs> hand... You might have thought, okay, this semifinal or conference final is going to be a cakewalk, but the Devils weren't that type of team. Those games during the regular season were pretty close, and it was very apparent that the Devils were a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. That series was sick. I mean, that series, <laughs> every shift was like pulling teeth to, to, to find some level of comfort. I mean, you were on the edge of your seat. You were holding your breath. I can't think of any other cliches and metaphors, but they would all fit. The, the way to sum it up is it was torture. That series <laughs> was torture. So now they're down three games to two, and they've, all, they've got all kinds of junk going on because Mike Keenan looked like he was losing his control of the bench, and um, there was a lot of internal strife, but the players stayed together and went into New Jersey for game six. Mark Messier on the back page of the post says, we'll win tonight, and you know the story by now, I'm sure. Pressure, yeah. Guaranteed they'd win that sixth game. Most Ranger fans with any sense of history felt they had no shot <laughs> to win that game, and yet they come from two nothing behind, win the game, and Messier gets the hat trick. It was just the stuff of legends. There's no other way to put it. So now they go to the Garden that Friday night for game seven. And that one game was a metaphor for the entire series because it was excruciating from the opening faceoff. It was so tight, so well played by both teams. I think there was one penalty for each team, if I remember properly. Um, I mean, it was, it was <laughs> just trap. Oh, it was just an incredible hockey game. And Brian Leach scored, as my broadcast partner Sal Messina called it in the moment, a Bobby Orr goal. Uh, off a face-off, a little spinorama, stuffs it in past pro door about midway through the second period. one nothing Rangers, and that's holding up. It holds up into the final minute, third period. It holds up into the final 30 seconds. It holds up into the final 10 seconds. 
And then there's a, the puck comes out of the corner, as I recall, and now there's a scramble in front, and Valerie Zelopukin takes two, three, whacks at it, and finally pushes it past Richter. And that was cruel and unusual punishment, <laughs> because for any level of aggravation that any Ranger fan had gone through in his or her life up to that point, that was ridiculous. You know, to have that puck go in at that time so close to the final, you know, it was just, it was as deflating as a, as a goal could ever have been. Yet, they go to overtime, and then a second overtime, and Stefan Matteau comes around the net and just wraps it in around Brodeur, and all heck breaks loose in the booth and on the ice. <laughs> Is that the most emotional call you've ever had? Because you've, you've called a lot of games for teams that you love. That has yeah, to be I've been unique, very lucky about unique that. Unique challenge in of itself. In particular, yeah. Um, you talk. How did you describe the the play? The most what now? Because the most emotional call yeah, you've had. Um, it was the most overt display of emotion. <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I don't know that it was any less emotional than when the very quote simple words came out of my mouth in Chicago in 2015. The Mets win the pennant. Yeah. Um, you know. I mean, they're somewhat similar in that when you win the conference final in the NHL, you advance to the Stanley Cup final, which is like winning the league pennant in baseball. So the result was going to produce something very similar. Um, the euphoria of the moment was completely different because the Mets had that game in hand in Chicago from yeah. the first inning. Yeah. So we were just counting the outs down, really. Um, but when Matt Toast scored that goal, it was we knew it was an all-or-nothing overtime for the entire season. And so, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the emotion that I let loose when Matt Toe scored was something uh, I've never done before, probably never will. <laughs> it's hard to imagine something topping that, although if, Possible the, if the Mets, you know, yeah, if the Mets want to you know, hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth at City Field to win the seventh game of the World Series, I'm, all, I'm ready for it. <laughs> I'm here for you. But um, it, it probably would take something like that to match that sort of euphoric delivery. But in terms of just what I felt inwardly, in terms of the emotions uh, ratcheting up within my system, I, I'd say those two were very similar, despite how different they sounded on the air. What would you say the biggest difference you have to make when you're doing a hockey game versus a baseball game is? Oh, man, they're, they're so completely different. Um, you know, as I described earlier, in a baseball game, you've got so much of the agenda that you can set. Yep. There is... When the ball is in play, and we all wish that would be a little more frequent, and hopefully next year <laughs> oh, it will. We're going to talk to you about that, don't oh, worry. Fine. <laughs> I got all day for that. Um, but again, baseball is more of a languid pace, casual delivery that you have a lot of control over as a broadcaster. Hockey is a whole different thing altogether. You sit down to do a hockey game in the broadcast booth, you just strap yourself in, and the game takes you, <laughs> the game takes you for a ride. It's incredible. You can't set the pace. You reflect the pace. And sometimes it's frenetic. And I'll tell you what, the last year I did hockey was the 15-16 season, so that's six years ago now. The game is faster today than it was then. Certainly. I don't know how you do hockey on radio anymore. Especially in the Eastern Conference. It's changed. Oh, my goodness. I, I, you know what? One of the things people don't realize is that uh, the broadcast booths and all the new arenas in, in hockey are 
way up, which is not all that bad, but they're also way back. Oh. And you strain so hard just to see who's got the puck. It really, it, it's, look, I was going to leave when I did anyway. It was time. But that was one of the things that helped push me out because uh, it, it wasn't fun anymore to just try and recognize who has the puck just because of the locations of the booths. Um, but as I say, the pace of the game is so unique that, um, you know, you just, you revel in the speed. You just hope you can keep up. This might, in all likelihood, be our last hockey question, but you did transition from Rangers to mm -hmm. Islanders at a point in your career. What was it like calling games on two different sides of a rivalry? And what was it like to, how did it affect your fandom? It, it was great for me because I, the, the Islanders weren't some, some secret club that I had no idea <laughs> of its origins or anything. The Islanders came into the National Hockey League my freshman year of college. I went to Queens College. Actually, my first semester I went to Brooklyn and transferred to Queens. So when I was a freshman in college, um, the Islanders Public Relations Department, being a brand new team, was smart enough to allow certain collegiate media uh -huh. to cover their games. Cool. So now I would bring my tape recorder, the same one that I brought to Madison Square Garden as a fan, into the press box at the island and sat in a quiet area with a friend of mine who was a sports writer for a the quiet campus area paper. inside an arena. Yeah, you can, <laughs> in terms of the population, it was not a, a fully populated press box in those days. And, and we did play-by-play -play into the tape recorder as though we were doing Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, we wow. played it serious. We didn't fool around or anything. Those were my ultimate audition tapes. Um, and part of that accreditation allowed me to speak to the players and, and coaches afterwards. There was only one coach, and most of the time I was doing that, it was Al Arbor, one of the great human beings I've ever met. Um, and so, you know, I, I got to know the Islander players yeah. from the earliest uh, stages of that franchise. And by the time I got their TV job in 1995, you know, I'm working with Ed Westfall, who was my partner, but I'd known him for years. <laughs> and, and the alumni were so welcoming to me that um, they really made me feel comfortable on that level. Now, the fans were a different story, <laughs> and I completely understand that because they wanted no part of me from the beginning. It was bad timing for them. Yeah. The Rangers had just won the Cup. I did one more year after the Rangers won the Cup, and uh, you know I didn't have to be Nostradamus to read the tea leaves. <laughs> Sam Rosen was going to be there forever, and Marv Albert was going to be there as long as he wanted. I was technically Marv's backup, even though I did about three-quarters of the games, but I was at a point in my career where I needed um, to establish myself on television, to expand my you know, broadcast horizons, if you will, and, and to just get a gig that was singularly mine. And when I heard that Jiggs McDonald probably wouldn't be back for the 95-96 season, I got, a horn, I got on the horn to my agent and said, get this. Yeah. And um, luckily, they were just as interested as I was. And you know, the first few years, as far as, as far as the fans were concerned, that was tough for me because, you know, not only was I coming over from a Ranger team that had just won the Stanley Cup, but the Islanders were bad. And, and it wasn't just that they were bad. It was, and that's, this is the one part that I didn't really understand until I got there. The acrimony between the fans and ownership was deep and real and significant. And from the moment I got there, they were talking about the need for a new building. But... You know, John Pickett, who was the owner then, had, had ceded control of about 90% of the team 
to, or the, let me rephrase that, he had ceded the managing control of the team to what they called this gang of four, two of whom went to jail, probably because <laughs> probably because they hired me. Um, that's true. I think in my time with the Islanders, let's see, um, obviously John Spano, um, Sanjay Kumar, uh, Walsh, Greenwood, that's at least, what, four? Yeah, four Islander yeah, owners who went to jail. Yeah. <laughs> um, they had the one guy who like bought the team with a fake check. Yeah, Spano, right? John okay, Spano. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, but uh, just to figure that out, a fake check. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's how gullible the NHL was. But um, anyway, long story short, um, there was a lot of acrimony between the fans and the Islanders, and bringing me, who had been so closely identified with the Rangers, in to replace a beloved figure, and rightly so, in Jiggs McDonald, that didn't sit well with them. So it took a while. It took took a few years before they came to accept me, but ultimately they did. And I had a tremendous 21 years with the Islanders. Had to be happy that there wasn't Twitter then, right? That uh, Twitter wasn't as uh, You active. know, <laughs> you bring up an interesting point there because had there been, I might not have lasted there. Yeah. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that as controversial as, as my hiring was there, that I lasted 21 years. I, I To this sure. day, yeah. I'd have to do the math. I don't know if Chris King has up to 21 years, he might. But at least at the time I left, I was the longest tenured broadcaster in Islander history. Yeah. And for a guy who wasn't wanted by the fan base <laughs> at first, I'm pretty proud of that. It's a good badge of honor to have. I'm, I'm proud of that. It's almost as long as you've done the Mets games on the radio. Well, radio, TV, you yeah, know, yeah. pre- and post-game show. I've been yeah, forever. doing this for a long time with the Mets and couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, so what do you... Or like now that you know you've been with the Mets for quite some time here, obviously a, a pretty big Mets fan, I would say, right? I just, grew up a huge just, Mets just fan a little since bit of day Mets one. Fan. Yeah. So, how have you felt like things have changed in your career from when you started with the Mets till now? In what regard? Just like your growth as a broadcaster, your growth, things that you've learned, you know, through working. Well, when I, it's an interesting question because when I started my professional affiliation with the Mets, it was 1987. And they had just won the World Series. You'll note, by the way, I got here in 87. They won their most recent World Series the year before. Just saying. <laughs> but uh, my job back then was as a pre- and post-game host. And we took phone calls. And it was a very uh, fan-driven show. I'm especially proud of the work that I did with Davey Johnson those first few years mm -hmm. because it became a lot of people tell me, uh, must-listen radio for Mets fans because Davey allowed me to approach the interviews with him as you would with any other uh, beat writer speaking to a manager. And mm -hmm. so he really, really gave us a lot of stuff and sometimes said a lot of things that would irk the front office too, <laughs> which put me in the middle of it and I would get caught in the crosshairs and that wasn't always comfortable. So, you know, when I morphed from doing pre and post into doing part-time play-by-play on radio and then uh, the full-time cable package on television with some of the over-the-air games too, and then all of the games on radio years after that, um, you know, by then I had learned that when you're doing play-by-play, -play, you're not doing a talk show. Mm -hmm. It's a much, much different um, skill set that you have to bring to the booth when you're doing play-by-play. -play. You can't make it about yourself. It's the game. When you're doing a show that is um, personality-driven, then it's about you, but not when you're doing play-by-play. -play. It took a while to adjust to that. I had to learn how to subjugate certain 
emotions that I might have about how to present either criticism of a play or question a, a decision that a manager or a coach might have made. Um, you learn how to do that as a play-by-play -play guy as opposed to as a talk show host. That was the biggest difference for me. That's great. That's insight we <clears throat> definitely love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here to help. <laughs> Something you touched on before, all the way at the beginning here, was that you were in the booth with Gary for a few years. Two years. So that is something that's very probably vexing to the modern Mets fans because you guys live, have similar roles. You both mm -hmm. do the play-by-play -play, TV and right. radio. So what was it like being in the booth together? How was the game delineated? Who talked about what, when? How did you even each find a, a second together word there? <laughs> oh, it was, it was easy because we had sort of a symbiotic relationship based on our backgrounds. You know, we knew what we brought to the table and that one could bail the other out if he was thinking about maybe a play or a player that was trying to remember or articulate something about that doesn't quite come to mind instantly. We kind of felt like we were at the point where we could complete each other's sentences, you know, mm -hmm. because of our sensibilities around the Mets. But I'll say this, and this is the, the greatest thing that I took from those two years, apart from my friendship with Gary and just enjoying being in the booth with him every night. That was special in and of itself. I mean, yeah. that's like sitting with your friend in the upper deck watching the game together. That, that's, that's what it was. That's what we do. Yeah, that's like, exactly. That's our whole thing is we and, just try to hang out and, and you, talk. You treasure that. And, and you will down the road when you don't do it anymore, believe me. Because when you're in the moment, I'm not trying to make you all too <laughs> no, here, no. but you know, when you're in the moment, you're so consumed by the job. But, Years later, even in an off-season. 25 you know, more years, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> you know, you'll think back and say, man, that was really cool. That's how I felt about working with Gary just as a friend. But most importantly, I learned more about how to broadcast baseball on radio from being with Gary in those two years that I did in all the years before and have in all the years since. There is so much that goes into describing a baseball game on radio, and Gary does not miss anything. And so, whereas you might think as a play-by-play -play announcer that a play ends when, let's say, there's a base hit that drives in a run, it doesn't end when you report who got the hit and who's on first base having driven in so-and-so. It's... What's going on in the dugout? What's the crowd reaction? What's the opposition looking at? What are the, what's going on in their dugout? You know, there's just so much that goes into making a call that if you're going to do it well, uh, transcends just base hit RBI. And, and watching Gary describe every nuance and every movement and every play in a way that best positions a listener to see it with his or her own eyes, even though they can't. That's what I drew from those two years from Gary, and that is um, priceless. You can't, you can't buy that. You can't read it in a book. You have, to ex you have to experience it. I experienced his preparation, how he organized the broadcast, um, which is something I thought I was pretty haphazard at. <coughs> oh, seriously. You? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We all evolve over time. And, and, and the two years that I worked with Gary allowed me to evolve to a point where I would hope I'm a better broadcaster now than I was before I started with him. Yeah, I mean, Mets fans, we're so lucky that whether it be on TV or radio, however you take in the game, you both of you guys are just what I would consider to be the best in the business. I, mean, I appreciate that. Thank you. Like, we're so spoiled. Do you guys, like, think of yourselves as, like, being the best? Like, is that... The best? No, being, I like, don't. Maybe not the best, but do you see, like, uh, just... Do you guys ever take in other broadcasts? And see, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I listen and I watch and I enjoy listening more than watching because I can relate more intimately to what's being said in a radio broadcast 
that I can on television. Oh, we're all our own worst critics. Of course. And we have favorites elsewhere also. Um, and I still enjoy listening to somebody I've never heard before do a baseball game because I, especially again on radio, I just feel that we've gotten to a point where I'll back it up to, let's say, my generation of broadcasters, and I mean, that's covering a lot of years now, because I'm, <laughs> no, seriously, because I'm, I'm 68, okay? So um, I'll, I'll say that if I can consider myself part of a generation of broadcasters, I would say the youngest edge of that generation that I would identify with would be Kenny Albert, Ian Eagle, okay. you know, that, yeah. that group. Mike Breen is certainly part of that. Um, Michael Kay. I mean, we're all contemporaries, but I would say the youngest edge of that would be Kenny and Ian. And, and they grew up aspiring to do radio, learn how to do a game on radio, whatever the sport, and then transition to television if the opportunity presents. And that's exactly what happened to them. That's what happened to me. And I think, and I even fear, that the younger generation of, of broadcasters coming through college today are so focused only on doing television that there's not enough emphasis placed on what it takes to be a really, really good radio, in this case, baseball broadcaster. So when I listen to somebody I haven't heard before, if I hear someone who seems pretty smooth and pretty, as I say, nuanced and, and pretty learned in the art of presenting the game on radio, that tells me that, that that's, that's going to be a real good broadcaster. And, and there are some. There are plenty. Oh, yeah. And I, I love listening to them. So we know that you've been pretty active on Twitter recently. Yeah, it's turned into fun. Yeah. Who so knew? That's, that's what I wanted to ask you about because when you started, obviously Twitter really wasn't a thing. So how have you been adapting, I, I guess, your own personal brand and using social media mm -hmm. alongside the broadcast? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what started it, or, or the derivation of my jumping in with both feet to Twitter. It was something I resisted, as you may know, for a yes, long, long absolutely. time. Uh, I didn't want any part of it because I know it can be a cesspool, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> and um, I just, there were two things. I didn't want to get into that. I didn't want to get my face dirty, yeah. you know, wrestling in the mud with things that didn't need to be wrestled with. Um, and at the same time, I also thought, you know, I'd like to have a glass of wine or two with dinner. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about, well, okay, I've had that second glass tonight and something really funny came to mind. <laughs> I can tweet this, right? <laughs> you know, what's gonna, nah, yeah. And then I would always say to myself, no, don't, don't, don't go on Twitter because you're gonna have that second glass of wine and you're gonna hit send when you shouldn't. And I've been very pleased to say that I have learned how to discipline myself. And I frankly don't drink two glasses much anymore <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But um, I am happy with how I've learned to generally stay, I don't want to say above the fray. That sounds condescending, but out of the mud. Yeah. And, um, and at the same time, discipline myself as to when to kind of rein myself in. So it, that, that those have been the two challenges. It can be hard, definitely, when you start yeah. seeing people like, and I feel like with me, at least, it's like whenever someone tries to tell you you're wrong, that's like the one you really have to like try to hold yourself back with yeah. the most because 
not that we're know-it-alls, but we, I think all of us have a pretty good knowledge of what's going on and what we're talking about. So when someone Maybe is... Like here and then here. Yeah. So like when someone's, yeah. When someone's right. like getting mad at you over something you know you're like right about, it it really is tough to, like you said, pull those reins back. Well, there are a couple of things that I do, and I don't know what you guys think, but um, there are times that I'll volley with somebody. Of course. If yeah. it's about something that I think will be entertaining and or perhaps even more so informative. Mm -hmm. Like if I have certain information that I put out, I'm never going to betray a confidence in doing so. But if I know something that the general populace doesn't and I feel it's appropriate to put it on Twitter, I will. Now, if somebody wants to argue with me about that and I'm coming from a point of knowing internally what this information is, why are you arguing with me? I'm telling you, I'm telling you the facts, and I get that from people at parties or get you know get together. Forget about Twitter. You know, somebody will say to me, "How come the Mets did this?" And if I know why, and I'm not betraying a confidence, yeah. I'll explain it. You expect, oh, okay, thanks. Some sometimes somebody will start arguing with you. People don't want to hear. And it's like, leave me alone, will you? Go, <laughs> go bother your wife. Leave me alone. Um, you know what? I don't. I'm, I'm, you ask me a question. I gave you the answer. Don't argue with me. You know, it's, if it's an opinion, that's one thing we can play with that. So, you know, those are the two things about Twitter that I, I've kind of gotten comfortable with. Sort of knowing when, as I say, to pull the reins in. And sometimes, I, I don't know how about you guys, but you know, people love to pull your chain of and they course, love 100%. to try to get under your skin. They call it trolling, I guess. And, yes. Um, Expert. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I could probably count on one hand the number I've, of people I've blocked. You know, if somebody, if somebody says stuff that I think is really inappropriate, and when they start digging into whether it's your family or some other personal stuff, that's, I don't need to, to read your garbage. No. Or if it's somebody else that, um, you know, is trying to push your buttons and you feel like, you know, you want to set them straight, I'll look at their profile. And if they've got like 10 followers, what am I wasting, <laughs> what am I wasting my time with some 10 follower guy for? That's social so, media growth right there. That's like, that's like a big thing that I feel like both of us at first, like you, you want to reply to everybody and then you're no. like, hey, it's not worth it. Like, no. I want to have I fun with the, it. The positive people. Yes, the I positive like to interact ones. with yeah. people who are nice and who want to actually have conversations about baseball or about life or anything. That's always it, but the negative people. And there's been a lot of negativity like more recently. That's yeah. what gets hard. Well, that's, that's, hey, imagine now doing a talk show. Imagine. Right? Yeah. Where, oh, man. you know, you don't have the, the luxury of saying, I won't answer this one. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's... Um, it, it, Twitter is fun when you manage it properly. I've learned that. I've learned how to deal with it. And if it ever gets to be a burden, then I'll just you know sign off. But but for now, uh, I, I feel that it, it bonds me even more closely to the fan base, if that makes any sense. Definitely. And it all started for me. I think this is my goodness. I talked around your question for about ten minutes. <laughs> I this apologize. Is what we want. That <laughs> you're the guest. Uh, that's just my age. No, I'm free. Oh yeah, he did ask a question, right? Um, it started for me during COVID in 2020 when we were in spring training getting ready for a season and all of a sudden we're dark. And now I remember we were approaching and I might have act oh, I know exactly what day it was that I went on Twitter. It was uh, opening, getting close to opening day and I say, you know, I really feel disconnected. Hmm. I feel disenfranchised almost yeah. from my audience, the fan base. I really have to think about going on Twitter. And, and this, believe me, guys, this was completely unintentional. Do you know the day that I sent my first tweet? And you may now recognize the date, and I wouldn't expect you to. It was April 11th, and as it turned out, 2020. 
Would you believe, and it didn't hit me until afterwards, April 11th of 1962 was the night that the Mets played their very first game in the National wow, League. Wow, wow. And that's just, woo! a coincidence. Yeah, yeah it went, believe me, that was an honest coincidence. As someone who's listened to you my basically entire conscious life on the radio, it has been a pleasure to like Thanks. get a sense of your personality <laughs> on Twitter and just like learn a little about you and yeah. be able to like slowly interact with you. But you mentioned about going dark with the team. How did that year and a half, I guess technically, of losing contact with the players, direct contact, oh. personal contact, how did that affect your ability to build relationships? And how does it affect your ability to even now build a relationship with the team that's very much mostly of new players in the last few years? Well, yeah, it's, that's a great question, James. It's been a challenge, and things have happened over the years, I think in most clubhouses, certainly us, where we're a little more sort of sequestered from the players, certainly, than when I started covering games. Um, it can be hard to track down a player sometimes. And if I really need to talk to somebody, I'll let... Um, somebody in the media relations department know that something I want to ask so-and-so about, can you grab them for me or let me know when a good time would be? Um, but I remember uh, last year we had very limited access, not to the clubhouse, but just downstairs on the field. And guys would be coming in and out of the dugout. I'm going, who's that? Who's this? <laughs> That's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So when we got to spring training this year and had clubhouse access, I was like a little kid in a candy store. I felt, ah, I'm reconnected with the guys that were there before. Uh, now, of course, with new guys, it's been a little um, not harder or more challenging. It's just been you know, a little more of a project to get to know them a little bit. You know what happens, too. You introduce yourself to somebody in spring training and go, hey, I'm Howie Rose, I'm one of the radio broadcasters with the Mets. And you have a nice chat with that person for five minutes, and then you might not see them for two weeks. They've totally forgotten who you are. So, you know, it really takes them seeing you on the planes and around the hotel before they realize, okay, he's, he's part of our traveling party. And for me, that's been more challenging this year because I'm not making every, every trip anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm still doing about, you know, 125 games, which is a lot. But, um, and I've needed, believe me, those breaks for a lot of reasons, but um, that makes it a little more challenging to get to know some of the players. Definitely. The, I mean, now with the team being good and you have access to everybody, mm -hmm. how have you felt that, like, maybe after the COVID season, has there been any sort of, like, people are more receptive to talk more because there was almost that, that break, that pause, or... Like, what do you think has changed the most from that year till now for that's, your job? That's a good question. I don't think that anything's changed with regard to the people with whom you establish relationships. Um, now, we have to wear masks in the clubhouse, mm -hmm. and I don't mind saying point blank, I can't stand wearing those <laughs> things anymore. I mean, nobody liked it or likes it, yeah. but to me, that's such a barrier between, yeah. say, myself and a player I'm talking to. You know, I'll see them on the, around the hotel, we're not wearing masks, or I'll see them on the field and we're not wearing masks. But apart from the fact that it's very uncomfortable and I'm almost to the point where I feel it's unhealthy to keep breathing in my own, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> and I'm not, it's not a political thing, it's a health-oriented thing. You know, I'm just kind of at the end of my rope with those things. But um, I, I think that's provided a bit of a barrier mm. that I can't wait to overcome by hopefully not having to do that next year. Yeah, hopefully. That would be nice. So we have about five minutes left here. Thank you again for... Sure, whatever you need. I'm here. This whole conversation has been beautiful. It's awesome. A little personal idol of mine is oh, amazing. But 
I was listening to the broadcast on Friday night, and it's a special treat when uh, Terry comes in the booth. Yeah. I know sometimes you still get Eddie Coleman in too, but it's fun to listen to like you and those guys like pontificate about the game, the changes of the game, where no, it's going. I hope going. we haven't exactly pontificated. I don't like pontificating. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't. It, it just makes me sound condescending if I'm pontificating. Okay, well, I'll take that I back. Might. I might. Ho I hope I don't. <laughs> you, you know, I might. And if I do, I apologize for that. I'm just being hyperbolic. This is, just, this is for effect here, Howie. But a bunch of rule changes were announced last week, and you guys spoke at length about them Friday mm -hmm. night during the game. So there's going to be a pitch clock on, similar to a basketball shot clock. There's going to be a limiting of pickoff throws, and the big one is the shift being banned in a particular way. So I think we just got a little sneak preview. Yep. If you could just talk about how you think these new rules will change the game going forward. Well, I'll tie it up into one very tidy little package. I am passionately in favor of anything or things that will get the ball in play yes. more than it's been. We can't go where we're at right now over four minutes on average between balls in play. That's a lot. It, it, it compromises the entertainment value of the greatest game in the world. And there is a recognition of that within the game, obviously, because it's been addressed. Um, it's going to take time for the players to adjust. But one thing that you should never lose sight of, as great as you think these players are at what they do, they are a thousand times better than you can even imagine. Oh, yeah. They are so, I mean, they're almost, they're freakish in just how great they are athletically and in their, abil in their ability to, let's say, throw and hit a baseball. Next time you guys are around <laughs> home plate, just stand out there for a second and look at the pitcher's mound. That's 60 feet, 6 inches away. Now imagine that thing's coming at you at 97, 98 miles an hour, nope. and they're sinking it, and they're cutting it, and they're spinning it, and they're doing everything else they do with it. And it could be a curveball. It could be a slider. And, yeah, <laughs> and these guys do what they do offensively, and these pitchers do what they do with their arms. They are so good that they will adjust. And there'll be a lot of crankiness, I'm sure, during <laughs> spring training. And everybody's going to be looking for loopholes. And everybody's going to be complaining about how they can't do what they used to do. And I would say at the outside, at the latest, by Memorial Day next year, everyone will have adapted and the product will be better. And that's all any of us want. Definitely, yeah. We, uh, we talked about a lot on the last episode you know, talking about each rule individually. And as much as we love the pitch clock, because it, it speeds up the game, no doubt about that, we were talking about the shift and how more balls in play will always be great. I have to assume the shift's got to be the thing that you're most excited about being eliminated, right? Well, yeah. I, I don't know if I would even qualify it as the most, because I think the pitch clock is great. Pitch clock's fantastic. Um, you know, the kid that pitched, I don't, I'm not sure exactly when this is, is going to air or drop or whatever you cool, <laughs> whatever you cool kids say we'll nowadays. Say air. <laughs> air, okay? Yeah, air. Um, you know, the, uh, the fellow who pitched the opening game of we're doing this when the Cubs are in town, the first game of the Mets-Cubs series, Javier Assad, he was taking a lot of time between wow, pitches yes. that he will not be able to take next year. And you realize that less as a fan than you do as a broadcaster because I keep coming back to pace and tempo um, of the game, sure. But as a broadcaster, you need to maintain a certain pace and tempo, and that is greatly challenged by... Uh, the slower movements of a lot of pitchers in particular. I don't mean to single them out because hitters take all day in some cases to get ready in the box too. So I just can't wait for next year's game to see if it has the desired effect, and I think it will. All right, Howie, last question here. One minute left. We're getting into a pennant race right now, the first we've had in a couple of years. You've seen every single Mets team that's ever played a game of baseball. 
how does this team stack up and where what are your aspirations for the rest of the season? Well, my aspiration is to make the call that I've been waiting to make yes. my entire life, and that is that the Mets win the World Series. And that is certainly very realistic this year. I would not be naive enough to sit in front of a camera or behind a microphone and promise it. No one can. Dave Roberts can't do it. Um, you know, Dusty Baker can't do it. Aaron Boone can't do it. Brian Snicker can't do it, even though they did it last year. Um, nobody can promise that. Yep. But I think promise is a very important word when looking at the 2022 Mets. There is still a great deal of promise in this team. And when we've seen them win some games in the fashion that they did over most of the first five months of this season, and I know there have been some speed bumps they've hit in the first couple of weeks of September, but it's neck and neck. They've got the three games with the Braves, and I think we're in for one heck of a ride the rest of the way, and I can't wait to see how it turns out. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up this episode on a high note with some good good vibes for the Mets here as they wrap up the series of the Cubs. Howie, thank you so much for coming on with us again. My this pleasure, was guys. Unbelievable. You, Hopefully we get to talk to you more throughout the year, maybe next year, whatever. We want to get you back on. I've enjoyed it. Talk and, more. You know, so I'm right next door. Feel free to come by. Let me know. I'll bring Danish. <laughs> All right, there you go. We'll hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> thank maybe you, not the Danish. You got it. Take care.